Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Today I want to finish talking about the Buddha's method, roughly the pre-theoretical assumptions that guide the Buddha's investigation of the human condition. Last week, we talked about the parameters of practicality and subjectivity. Today, we'll talk about the remaining parameters of insubstantiality and conditionality. First, insubstantiality. Most of us find that the Buddhist teachings on topics like emptiness and non-self are the hardest aspects of Dharma to comprehend. And the Buddha predicted these would be the first to be forgotten. These topics are actually natural consequences of the parameter of insubstantiality. And insubstantiality provides a natural entry point for these teachings. To begin with, we recognize that our world is a duality, inner and outer. The inner world, in here is clearly in the scope of experience. Mental events like awareness, hearing, seeing, lust, pleasure, interest, attention, anger, pain, thinking, craving, intentions, plans, urges, ideas, and physical events like bodily sensations, inspiration, devotion, serenity, and jhana. We experience the inner world generally as rather chaotic and unpredictable, a flood of activity, if we're paying attention at all, and a whirling, billowing fog if we're not. But what's the status of the outer world out there where real things dwell, like trees, keys, bees, and waterfalls, cars and airplanes, dogs and cats, bank accounts? yoga classes, other people, and the moon. Certainly we experience such things, so we're justifying and referring it to it as an outer world. Recall that world, for the Buddha, is the world of experience. But we have to take care to notice a fine line here, lest we admit too much to the world of experience. First, experiencing things as real is not the same as experiencing real things. We certainly experience things as real, and because we experience things as real, we are convinced that we experience real things, but we do not know that these things are real. The reason we equate experiencing things as real and experiencing real things is that we presume that how we experience the outer world accurately reflects natural reality, what is true out there beyond experience. In other words, we take 
our experience of out there at face value. We don't know how true this presumption might be because we cannot actually see beyond our experience to check. Imagine that we live in the matrix, for instance. We make a lot of presumptions about the outer world, but presumptions themselves are mental events, experiences that belong to the inner world. Insubstantiality means that the Buddha Vachana, the teachings of the Buddha, avoids ontological claims, claims about what is real out there. That we experience something as real is Buddha Vachana, but not that something is real in the absolute or substantial sense of real independently of experience. This is a pivotal point for the Buddha, who claims right at the beginning of the Dhammapada, all phenomena are preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Trees, keys, bees, and waterfalls, dogs and cats, are preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, in our world of experience. This is not to deny that real objects are somehow underlying causal factors in our experience. The Buddha Vachana simply does not take a stand. Reality becomes another underlying mechanism behind our experiential world that we might be inclined to speculate about, but that we know not of. If we experience something as out there, we can explain it in one of two ways. Suppose we experience a UFO. We see lights moving in the sky, say, in a bizarre pattern. We might seek to explain it objectively. It must be of extraterrestrial origin because the technology to produce that pattern is unknown on Earth. But from what planet did it come? How did it get here? Alternatively, we might seek to explain it epistemically. Am I hallucinating? Did I pop one too many pills? Is a twiddlebug larva creeping across my glasses? Can weather or optical effects explain what I'm seeing? Insubstantiality is agnosticism or skepticism toward objective explanation. It does not take the outer world at face value. It therefore favors the epistemic perspective of attributing our experience not to natural reality, but rather to the processes that produce that experience. These are, for the most part, mental processes, and this is the significance of mind preceding all things. Insubstantiality points toward the epistemic perspective of what makes us think we know what we think we know, rather than toward the objective perspective of what actually is going on out there. This is a key point in properly understanding, for instance, the chain of dependent co-arising. Notice that insubstantiality is a reasoned consequence of subjectivity. It might at first seem like needless hair-splitting, but in fact it makes a huge difference for Buddhist practice. 
We tend to take the outer world at face value, presuming all over the place that it simply reflects natural reality directly. In fact, the link of contact is just this mode of experience. As we presume, the outer world becomes a predetermined thing and therefore not something we can experience differently. Since our practice is directed at experiencing differently, our options in practice are greatly reduced when we take the outer world at face value. This is a problem for what we contact, we feel, what we feel, we crave, and so on, leading to this massive suffering. About presumption, the Buddha said, Presumption is a disease. Presumption is a tumor. Presumption is a dart. By overcoming all presumptions, bhikkhu, one is called a sage at peace. And the sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die. He is not shaken and does not yearn, for there is nothing present in him by which he might be born. Accordingly, we find that the Buddha Vachana guides our practice toward presuming otherwise and ultimately towards not presuming at all. The teaching and internalization of non-self is part of the project. For me, is the most vexing of the things we experience as real. The practice of samadhi and its cultivation as a particular mode of perception in which we view concepts or experience as empty, sunya, is also part of that project. More generally, we turn away in our practice from the objective task of trying to figure out what is going on out there and instead toward the epistemic task of analyzing in detail the cognitive processes that produce our presumptions to acquire a sense of the mental constructedness of our presumed reality and to learn to presume otherwise. In fact, this epistemic project is really the main function of the five links of dependent co-arising that lead to contact. Our aim is, as Hamilton puts it, to acquire insight into the very nature of cognition, into how our experience operates, which she equates with knowledge and vision of how things are, which famously brings us oh so close to awakening. So far, we've looked at things in the outer world in terms of insubstantiality. A further aspect of insubstantiality is the Buddha's routine refusal to endorse views. For the Buddha, we have no basis for ever knowing if something is really true or false. There are five things that may turn out in two different ways here and now. What five? Faith, approval, oral tradition, reasoned cogitation, and reflective acceptance of a view. These five things may turn out 
in two different ways here and now. Now something may be fully accepted out of faith, yet it may be empty, hollow, and false. But something else may not be fully accepted out of faith, yet it may be factual, true, and unmistaken. As for faith, so for approval, oral tradition, reasoned cogitation, and reflective acceptance of a view. Bhikkhu Bodhi describes views in the Buddha Vachana as tangles, knots, and matting in the works that prevent living beings from passing beyond samsara. Nevertheless, some views are right view, which has been described not as a corrective to wrong views, but as a detached order of seeing to be put into practice, not believed in, or as something to be taken seriously but held loosely. A telling discourse about views illustrates how practicality, subjectivity, and insubstantiality cohere. Kokananda approached a monk who would turn out to be Ananda to ask some questions about Buddhist doctrine. How is it, sir? Do you hold the view? The world is eternal. This alone is true. Anything else is wrong? I do not hold such a view, friend. Then do you hold the view? This world is not eternal. This alone is true. Anything else is wrong. I do not hold such a view, friend. He then asks further questions in this vein, such as whether the world is finite or infinite, whether the soul and the body are the same or different, whether or not the Tathagata exists after death, and in each case, Ananda replies, I do not hold such a view, friend. Taken aback at the monk's obliviousness, Kokananda asks, Could it be, then, that you do not know and see? It is not the case, friend, that I do not know and see. I know and see. Huh? Completely bewildered, Kokananda asks, How, friend, should the meaning of this statement be understood? The world is eternal. This alone is true. Anything else is wrong, friend. This is a speculative view. And so on for the other suggested views. To the extent, friend, that there is a speculative view, a basis for views, a foundation for views, obsession with views, the origination of views, and the uprooting of views, I know and see this. When I know and see this, why should I say I do not know and see? I know and see, friend, I see. Ananda and Kokanada talk past one another precisely because Ananda's perspective is epistemic and Kokananda's objective. Ananda's answers follow naturally from the parameter of practicality, subjectivity, and insubstantiality and their consequent resort to an epistemic viewpoint. For Ananda, speculative views are not practical, 
They do not form a basis of practice and benefit. Speculative views are not subjective. They are matters outside the world of experience. Speculative views are insubstantial. They are presumptions, pure and simple. Through Ananda's epistemic focus, he knows and sees how the view arises, even while he refuses to endorse it. Conditionality. Conditionality is a defining feature of dependent co-arising. It is at root a technique for revealing the structures and regularities of the experiential world, and in particular the world's dynamics, where Buddhavachana most scrupulously follows the parameters of practicality, subjectivity, and insubstantiality, the techniques of explanation are quite limited since they cannot resort to underlying mechanisms or hypotheticals beyond experiential verification. In stark contrast, for instance, to the scientific method, conditionality is essentially what remains to explain the single stratum of what is directly observable. Just as insubstantiality tends to limit explanation to epistemic processes, subjectivity tends to limit explanation to conditional relations. Nonetheless, conditionality serves this need well, and it reveals and describes complexities in a way that highlights reference points for practice. Conditionality is a simple principle most typically described in the suttas as follows. When this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. From the cessation of this comes the cessation of that. A conditional relation or dependency is a statement about an observable pattern of co-occurrence. A primary example of a conditional relation is the second noble truth, the truth of the origin of suffering which is craving, abbreviated as craving gives rise to suffering. This means that when suffering arises, it is in the presence of craving. The world is such that we can easily discover for any given factor many dependencies. However, we typically find in the Buddha-Vachana linear chains of dependencies expressive of an unfolding of phenomena, each giving rise to the next in sequence. For instance... With contact as condition, there is feeling. What one feels, that one perceives. What one perceives, that one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. With what one has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions and notions born of mental proliferation beset a man. Similarly, the seven factors of awakening express an unfolding that produces meditative states as follows. 
Mindfulness gives rise to investigation. Investigation gives rise to energy. Energy gives rise to delight. Delight gives rise to serenity. Serenity gives rise to samadhi. Samadhi gives rise to equanimity. Most famously, the unfolding of the 12 links of dependent co-arising gives rise to the entire human dilemma. Ignorance gives rise to formations, gives rise to cognizance, gives rise to name and form, gives rise to the sixfold sphere, gives rise to contact, gives rise to feeling, gives rise to craving, gives rise to appropriation, gives rise to becoming, gives rise to birth, gives rise to this mass of suffering. It should be noted that the world does not naturally arrange itself into such linear chains. Rather, they are artifacts of a technique that keeps our practice focused on one condition at a time, where in fact the world presents a dense snarl of conditionality. Conditionality not only gives us a means of explaining the complexities of the experiential world, but also a basis for practice as a means of allowing us to experience that world otherwise. The great beauty of conditionality is that in discovering how the human dilemma arises step by step, it also provides a handle on how the human dilemma might be limited or cease step by step, overturned through practice. Let's use fire as an illustration of this principle. Fire is conditioned by the following factors. Heat, hydrocarbon-based fuel, and oxygen. When all three of these are present, all else being equal, there is fire. Now, understanding conditionality allows us to engineer desirable outcomes. Fire is sometimes desirable, for instance, in the hearth, and sometimes undesirable, for instance, in a pile of oily rags and paint cans, or in California's forests and grasslands. If we want to start a fire, we need to ensure that all three conditioning factors are present. If we want to stop a fire, we need only ensure that at least one of the conditioning factors is absent. Anyone will do. Dousing a fire with water deprives it of oxygen and heat. Blowing on a fire may give it more oxygen, but also lowers its temperature. Building a fire break might eventually deprive it of fuel. Of course, the fire itself gives rise to heat, which then becomes a condition for the next moment's fire. Ultimately, we hope, through Buddhist practice, to bring the fires of suffering under some degree of control to experience otherwise. We cannot will suffering to end. Don't worry, be happy. But we can, with effort, control many of its various conditions, such as craving. It happens that we cannot will craving to end either. Don't crave, be content. But we can look for the conditions of craving, 
such as feeling, and then try to control those, and so on. This is the usefulness of chains of conditionality and the genius of the parameter of conditionality. It's worth noting that conditionality is, for the Buddha, not a metaphysical theory, but it would become that in later Buddhist traditions, but a technique of investigation that works well in the inner domain that is the focus of much of the Buddha Vachana and certainly of dependent co-arising, in which it is a means of avoiding metaphysics. In conclusion, the four parameters of the Buddha's method give us progressively a more refined notion of what the Buddha Vachana is and what it is not. Practicality tells us that the Buddha Vachana is squarely a practice tradition, not a set of obscure theories. Subjectivity tells us that its scope is the world as we experience it, not what is hidden from us. Insubstantiality admits to that world the presumption of things being real out there, but not the things themselves. Conditionality excludes what is hidden from experience from playing a role in discovery and description. The Buddha's method is the proper container for the teaching of the Buddha. Dependent co-arising fits comfortably within those parameters, for instance, like shoes in a shoebox or eggs in an egg carton. On the other hand, if the Buddha's method is misunderstood, understanding the Buddha's teachings might well end up being like trying to fit a tuba into a violin case or like trying to store milk in an egg carton. I hope that this brief account of the Buddha's method will facilitate the reader's engagement with the study of the Buddha's teachings.